I originally planned to preach all of 2 Kings 20. Near the end of the week, I uh, received a message that uh, the, some of the women of the church had a, sort of a, a, an overarching question related, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> it's nice I can move the mic from my, <clears throat> okay, I can't do that normally, just turn away and it sticks with me, related to the sovereignty of God and prayer, sovereignty of God and prayer, now, for those of you who don't know, the women of the church are reading a book by Jerry Bridges called Trusting God, and it deals with God's sovereignty a fair bit. And so um, when, we, when we emphasize the fact that God is sovereign, that God is in control, it's easy for us to uh, begin to think that everything that we do is meaningless, right? It's easy for us to be tempted to see that it really doesn't matter, that we can become what is called, uh, well, really, hyper-Calvinists is one of the words that this goes by, okay? And it is a, uh, it is a rejection of the the uh, guilt of man, ultimately, although um, there are many things that would cause us to still see guilt. When we, when we say that man isn't responsible, that God is responsible for absolutely everything, you can't help but ultimately do away with man's guilt. We end up blaming man's guilt on God. More importantly for our text this morning, there becomes no point in praying. No point whatsoever in prayer because God's going to do what God's going to do. He's already determined it, and so why bother praying? Well, here we have a passage that is perfectly situated in our text to be the answer to the question I received on the week that I was planning to preach it. And so, although that wasn't really going to be the main focus of my sermon, I decided, well, we better just cut it down to just those verses, and we'll hit the second half of the chapter next week. And isn't it beautiful the way that God sovereignly works to bring about the answer to this question on this week, the day that it was, or the week that it was asked, so is there, any, is there anything that God is not in control of? No, there's nothing. And yet, one of the things that we learn from this text is the power of our prayers. The power of our prayers. It's remarkable, isn't it? So, with this story and with that introduction, it's easy for us to get wrapped around the axle, to get tied up in knots and very confused about God's sovereignty. There is much good that comes from studying God's sovereignty. There is much good that comes from growing in our knowledge and our understanding of what Scripture teaches us about how God works through uh, all things to accomplish his goodwill. And when you begin to study it more deeply, you'll hear or you'll read people speaking of the various wills of God, the, 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 the kinds of God's will. And I'm not going to try to go that deep this morning. Okay, I just want, I, I want to acknowledge you, you, will, you will read about those kinds of things and they can be very helpful for us to grow in understanding how these things fit together. But ultimately what I want us to start by acknowledging is that his will is a mystery to us. His will is a mystery to us. It is hidden 
from us. It's hidden from the wise. And so if you, if you go away saying, I don't see how these things can possibly go together, but I accept it by faith because that's what God's word says, then amen. Amen. That's what we need. We need to receive these things by faith. Not seeking to be so wise that we understand all of the depths of God's holy, perfect will. Nothing that we do will ever fully reveal that to us, right? And yet it is glorious for us to grow in knowledge and understanding. And so let's study this. Let's study this together. One of the questions that comes up with regard to God's will in this passage is a question of whether the Lord changes his mind. Okay, so now who's ready to take a risk? Everybody ready to take a risk? Everybody that thinks that this text shows that God changes his mind, raise your hand. Okay? Everyone who thinks that this text shows that God doesn't change his mind, raise your hand. I think y'all are crazy. What I would say is, I don't see how you would get that from this text, that God doesn't change his mind. So maybe you didn't want to raise your hand on either one and felt like you had to raise it on the second one because you hadn't raised it on the first. I wasn't trying to trick you. I was just curious whether we'd get any hands. I'm glad you guys all raised your hands. Thank you. We did get some hands for that first question, but they were little kids. I don't think they were listening very carefully um, or comprehendingly. Does God change his mind? When we answer that question, no, it's because we know elsewhere in Scripture, not from this passage, right? But we know elsewhere in Scripture that God has said, am I like a man that I would change my mind? And no, my word stands forever. I I don't change my mind, right? We know that God has spoken this way several times throughout Scripture. And so... We know the answer, the good theological proper answer. But when we read this passage, we see a prophet sent from the Lord to Hezekiah saying, you're not going to get better, you're going to die, set your affairs in order. Is that what happens? I saw that head shake No, that's not what happens, is it? So has God changed his mind by the time we get to the end of this passage? Yeah, he has. Unless you want to say that God was lying when he sent the prophet Isaiah to to King Hezekiah to give him that message. And this is the next question that we, that we face when we say, okay, well, we know God uh, doesn't change his mind, and so I guess the message was just false? I, I don't know. What are we supposed to, what are we supposed to make? But, but, but is God a liar? No. Let God be found true, though all men, all men be found to be liars, right? So we know God isn't a liar, Like I said, it's easy for us to get wrapped around the axle on this story, isn't it? Does the Lord change his mind? And I I place those two before you as sort of the simple uh, philosophy 100 questions that people will try to introduce to Christians to trip you up. I remember when I was taking intro to philosophy, and the the question that was meant to trip up Christians was, can God make a stone that is too heavy for himself to pick up? Can God make a, a rock that's so big that he can't pick it up? And of course, the problem is that if you say, 
yeah, he can make a, as big a stone as he wants, right? That, you know, God can do anything he wants. So of course he can make a stone that's too big for him to pick up. Well, then he's not God. He can't pick it up. So he's not omnipotent. He doesn't have all power. So you've got to give up one of the character. The whole point is that you've got to give up one of the character traits of God, right? And so you'll find people who will place these kinds of conundrums before you and say, well, you know, does, is God a liar or does he change his mind? You've got to pick one or the other. And this is where you'll find people talking about the various wills of God. Okay, you'll find people talking about the various wills of God. Now, again, without trying to get super deep into uh, a lot of philosophy on these kinds of questions, let me, let me put a, an explanation in front of you that may not fully take care of that conundrum, might not completely unwrap you from the axle, if you think about it deeply, but that, like most things that are supposed problems with God's word, it is actually fairly easy for us to understand if we're willing to accept by faith that God is higher above us than the sky. And the sky's really high. Have any of you ever flown on a jet, any of you kids? Do you, do you know how high jets normally fly? Their cruising altitude is? Anybody? Kids don't know. What, what, what was that? Yeah, thirty to 35,000 feet up in the air. This is six. This is six feet up. 35 feet is really scary. 35,000 feet is unfathomable to us. That's how high we fly. And you know, 35,000 is nothing. You guys remember that guy who wore an astronaut, shoot and, uh, astronaut suit and went up in a balloon about 10 years ago and jumped do you know how high he jumped from? Yeah, it was over 100,000 feet, I think. I didn't look this up. This was not in my notes. My, wife's, my wife looked at my notes this morning. She's like, I don't see that. <laughs> yeah, my memory is it was well over 100,000 feet up. So th three times higher than jets fly. How high above jets is God. His ways are not like our ways, are they? His thoughts are not like our thoughts. His thoughts are not like our thoughts. But, but really, this isn't that hard to understand. Perhaps God's message to Hezekiah that he was going to die was intended to cause Hezekiah to pray. So that Hezekiah would not die. Do I claim to know the depths of the will of God and what was going on in God's mind in this story? No, because we're only given a little bit of what's going on with God in this story, right? We're given a lot that's going on with Hezekiah. And isn't that appropriate, us being men, that we would understand much better what's going on with Hezekiah than what's going on with God? And isn't there much that we can learn from Hezekiah and how God deals with Hezekiah without 
worrying whether we fully understand how God works and what exactly he's trying to do. So, what do we need to know to start with? We need to know that Hezekiah was going to die. When God sends a prophet and the message from the Lord is you're going to die, there's no doubt about it. You're going to die. And the next thing we need to know is that then Hezekiah prayed and God answered his prayer and extended his life. God answered his prayer and extended his life. And so, if there's one thing that you should take away this morning, it is that prayer is powerful. Prayer is powerful because you cannot read this story and have any concept of God's sovereignty without seeing, wow. Prayer is so powerful that it causes us to be a little bit confused even about God's sovereignty. That's how powerful prayer is, that it almost makes it look like God is someone who changes his mind. That's how powerful prayer is. We know God doesn't change his mind. But look at how powerful prayer is. Hezekiah was going to die, but when he prayed, God heard his prayer and answered it. So let's, let's look then at Hezekiah. Let's look at his prayer and God's answer to his prayer. When Hezekiah hears he's going to die, what does he do? I've been saying it over and over and over again. He prays, thank you, Solomon. Nailed it. He prays. And what else does he do? Well, I'm going to come back to this later on in the sermon. Did any of you kids catch what else he does besides praying? Yeziel. Turns his face to the wall. That's like, and what? Yes, wit. What? Oh, that's, that's later. That's later. I, you guys all missed it. He cries. He cries. See verse 3. After the prayer, it says, And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Now you might think, well, yeah, I mean, I, I might cry if I found out I was going to die too, right? Or you might focus on bitterly and be like, well, he shouldn't be crying bitterly. That sounds bad, you know. Or, uh, or you might just skip right over it like most of you apparently did. But, but like I said, I'm going to come back to this. What happened? Oh, okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. We're going to come back to this and we're going to see that this really matters. We're going to see the impact that even his tears, even his weeping have on the, Lord, on the Lord's answer. But let's focus first on his prayer. Let's focus first on what he says to the Lord. I'm going to read it for you again, verse 3. Remember now, O Lord, I beseech you. What does beseech mean? I don't see anything over there. What does beseech mean? Anybody? All right, fine. Zeal? What? Cry out? Yeah? It, when... Uh, 
it's, it's crying out, but not, there's, there's lots of kinds of crying out, right? There's lots of kinds of crying out. Like when you hit your thumb with a hammer, do you beseech? No, you cry out, but you don't beseech. So it's a little bit more than crying out. Any adult want to help with what does beseech mean? Or, oh, uh, go ahead. To plead, to plead with. Beseech means plead, pleading, crying out, pleading. So he says, remember now, O Lord, I beseech you how I have walked before you. He wants God, please, God, please remember how I have walked before you in truth and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. That's the prayer that's recorded for us. Now, there's a lot of places where we have things recorded in Scripture and we get little short snippets of them or short summaries of them that are given as the whole, right? So is it possible that Hezekiah said more than this? Yeah. Is it possible he repeated himself and just said this five times in a row or things very like this? Yeah, it's possible. This doesn't say, and that's all he said, right? But this is the summary of his prayer. And in fact, he couldn't have prayed too much more than this. Because remember, before Isaiah has made it to the inner court, he's turning around and coming back with the answer to the prayer. So this is a, this is a case where this is not a sentence that's put in for a two-hour prayer from Hezekiah, Right? It's not even a sentence that's put in for a five-minute prayer from Hezekiah. This is pretty close to about all he said. It's got to be because that's how short the prayer had to be for the answer came that quickly. The answer came so soon. Remember, O Lord, I beseech you, how I have walked before you in truth and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. This is the prayer. Remember how I followed you and your commands with my whole heart. That's the Joseph paraphrase, right? Short it down a little bit, as if it's not short enough. Remember, God, I love you. Remember, God, I'm yours. All of me. This is a prayer like we see many times in the Psalms. You remember David especially records many psalms that sound like this. He appeals to the Lord on the basis of his righteousness. And this is something that, again, you want to talk about good Reformed people getting wrapped around the axle. We've got two in one text, right? What are we to make of a man appealing to God and praying, beseeching him to remember his righteousness? There is not one that's righteous, right? Not one that seeks the Lord. And, and, and there is, as Jesus says, nobody good but God. And yet here, Hezekiah, and if this was, if, if this was going to be misinterpreted, we've got all of the Psalms to show us that actually we are supposed to pray this way, right? Okay, so we can't, we can't look at Hezekiah and be like, oh, what a terrible prayer. What a self-righteous, ignorant person, right? No, we have to say, okay, this, 
Even, even if we were tempted to say, that's, that's a bad prayer, then God answers it. And he answers it with a resounding yes, right? Okay, well, God could still do that even with a bad prayer. But then you're stuck with the Psalms. And King David praying like this over and over. And this being the, the songbook of the saints, as it were, right? That, that we are to sing these songs. We're to pray this way. Now, how many of you wish you could pray this way? How many of us can say, remember, O Lord. Remember, I beseech you, how I have walked before you in truth and with a whole heart. Not most of my heart, not part of my heart, with a whole heart. And have done what is good in your sight. How many of us feel, feel like we can pray that way? Think of all the kings that have come before Hezekiah. We've been studying kings, and we've been reading about these kings that are terrible, right? The fact of the matter is, Hezekiah, we've already seen, is a great king. He's a fantastic king. Remember how faithful Hezekiah was, walking according to his father David, right? He's the only king who isn't compared negatively with anybody. He's just left up there as this paragon of virtue as a king. He's the one who takes down the high places. Finally, finally the high places are gone. Who else has been like Hezekiah? There's no other king, right? That's what the Bible says. There's no other king that's been like Hezekiah. So, in that context, we can be like, well, yeah, I mean, he deserves to be able to pray that way, doesn't he? After all, he was a better king than all the rest. Can you pray that prayer right now? Can you pray that prayer right now? Some of you can, and some of you can't. Some of you can, and some of you can't. There are many kings that could not pray this way to the Lord. They, they were able to pray to the Lord. But they were not able to say, remember how I followed you with all my heart, Right? I've walked according to your command. Some of you, though, can pray this way. And in fact, like I said, the Psalms are filled this, with this kind of prayer, and we are to pray this way. Now, how are you going to pray this way if I say you can't pray this way? My call to you is to be like Hezekiah so that you can pray this way. You say, well, it's, you know, I already blew it. I sinned yesterday, so I guess I can't play, pray that way anymore, ever, right? And they say, no. Today, start with your whole heart to follow after his footsteps, David's footsteps, Hezekiah's footsteps, the footsteps of our Lord Jesus Christ. Take up your cross daily and follow him and pray this way. It's a beautiful, beautiful prayer. He isn't claiming to be sinless any more than David is. We've got David's confessions of sin, right? and his protests of his innocence. Hezekiah is no more an idiot 
than King David is. In fact, he's just like him. And that's why his prayer is a lot like David's prayer. Which would you rather pray in your darkest hour of need? And this is Hezekiah walking through the valley of the shadow of death, isn't it? He's not just sick, stuck on his bed, wondering whether he's going to live. He has the messenger of the Lord having come and given him the answer to his question. You're going to die. Put your affairs in order. Get ready. It's a dark hour of the night, isn't it? Which would you rather pray? Remember how I've followed you with my whole heart. That's his prayer, right? Or, here's another prayer that you might recognize. Oh, Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me just this time, oh God, that I may at once be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. Notice, hey kids, who was that? That was Samson, that's right. Notice what Samson doesn't pray. Remember how I've walked in your footsteps and followed you with my whole heart. Samson can't pray that, can he? Samson doesn't have his eyes because he didn't do that. But you know what's beautiful? I've been telling you, you need, to, you need to be able to pray this way. Begin to live in such a way that you can pray this way. But you know what? If you're going through the darkest hour of your life, like Hezekiah or like Samson, either way, you can pray. And God hears Hezekiah, and he answers his prayer with a resounding yes, doesn't he? And does he hear Samson's prayer? Oh, yeah, he does. He hears Samson's prayer, and he answers it with a resounding yes. So you can go to God in prayer at any time, no matter what your life has been. No matter how you've been living, no matter how you have sinned, no matter how holy or lacking your holiness has been, right? You can go to God in prayer and you can expect that he will hear your prayer and he will answer you. And your prayer will not be pointless. It will not be empty. But which one do you want to pray? I don't want to pray Samson's prayer, do you? <laughs> yeah, this is, my, this is me and my misery because I deserve it. But remember me, please, God, just once, one more time. God answers the prayers of both of these men. If you can't pray like Hezekiah, pray like Samson. Pray. Pray to the Lord, your God. God, I know I don't deserve your mercy. I confess I've turned away from you and your commands many times. This is not Hezekiah's prayer, is it? But please be gracious to me. Why? Why should he be gracious to you? For the sake of your son, Jesus, save me. For the glory of your name, pluck me out of the pit. Because your promise is that you will not turn away those who come to you, that those who knock, you'll answer the door, that those who seek will find, that those who are weary and bent and almost broken, they won't be snapped.
So keep your promises, God, so that your name will be glorified. You see, we can pray and we can know that God will hear us. Why? Because he says he'll hear us. If we repent, if we confess, he says he will hear us and answer us from heaven. Uh, Some of you might be frustrated because Isaiah the prophet is there and it's like, you know, an answer like that's pretty awesome. He's answering on earth. Not just from heaven, right? But what is God's response? God's response is, I have heard your prayers. God is in heaven. And when he says he'll answer from heaven, what it means is he has all the power to do what he wants. He will answer. And he will accomplish his holy will. Your prayers matter. They make a difference. I have heard your prayers. If you had not prayed, what was going to happen to Hezekiah? The end. He's dead. I saw that hand. What were you going to say, Christine? You going to answer? He was going to die. That's right. She's listening. That's what was going to happen. But what? But he prayed. He prayed, and so he didn't. And then we get to that second thing I said before. I warned you this is coming. What else does God say in answer? I have heard your prayers. I have seen your tears. I have seen your tears. Yeah, God's in heaven. Far above us, and he hears our prayers from his place of majesty and power and dominion, doesn't he? But when it says, I have seen your prayers, what does that communicate to you? He's right there. And he cares that Hezekiah is crying. Do you care? When your brother cries, God cares when we cry. He's right there. He has seen Hezekiah's tears. And so that may seem like a weird observation to us until we realize what comfort that gives us. If he sees your tears, that means he knows what you're feeling. He knows what you're going through. In fact, all through scripture, we hear that God cares about those who cry. Who cry out to him, yes. But he sees the affliction of the Israelites under the, under the, the Pharaoh and the Egyptians, right? Right? And he hears them crying out. He sees their suffering and he cares. And he sees Hezekiah weeping bitterly and he he cares. It's not weird that God knows and cares we're crying. It's awesome. It's comforting. And then what does he say? I will heal. Boom. Boom. Gotta love it, right? I will heal. You'll be better in a couple of days. I'm giving you 15 years. That's a full-orbed answer to prayer, isn't it? That's a huge, huge answer to prayer. But what did I skip? You thought that was huge. What did I skip? Do any of you kids know? I will also save you from Assyria. 
oh, I didn't know what I was praying for. I didn't realize what was going on here with this prayer. I thought it was just about me and my impending death. But it's about so much more than that, isn't it? This is more than Hezekiah prayed for, but God is so kind to us. He knows what we need before we ask him. And this is still part of God's answer to Hezekiah's prayer. You see, you can't separate it from Hezekiah's prayer. This is God's answer to Hezekiah's prayer. And so we pray, and, and we know we don't even know what we need to ask for, but God mercifully answers our prayers even though we don't even know what we should be asking for. God sure remembers Hezekiah's wholehearted devotion and service to the Lord, doesn't he? Hezekiah gave his life to serving the Lord as king. And God rewarded him, didn't he? What a beautiful, beautiful thing. I'll save you from Assyria. So why does God make us suffer in the first place? Why doesn't God just remember what King Hezekiah did and then like not make him about to die and not make him sick in the first place and not send the Assyrians? Some of you are tempted to think God just likes to make us suffer because he's vindictive. God likes to make us suffer because it's kind of funny to him to jerk our chain around. And that's why we get superstitious and like, things are going well. Knock on wood. We don't want to jinx things. You never know when God might hear us saying that things are well and then, and then like, oh, this is a great time for a rug pull. This is not God. This is Satan's image of God for you. Right? Yeah, yeah, Satan wants you to think that's the way God is. This vindictive jerk who just likes to raise people up so that he can be like, <laughs> and knock you down. Is God the one who raises up? Yes, he is. Is he the one that knocks down? Yeah, he is. He does that too. Is he vindictive? Is he just a meanie head? That one comes from you, Mr. Meanie Head. You like to call people meanie head, don't you? No, oh, I th must be somebody else. God's not a meanie head, you guys. You see it in his answer, right? But then why does he let us suffer in the first place? You think it's because he doesn't love you. Does God love his son? God loves Jesus, doesn't he? Doesn't the Father love the Son? Could there be a better relationship, a more loving, perfect relationship than the relationship between God the Father and God the Son? No. God loves his Son. So listen to this. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. If it wasn't for his suffering, we don't get eternal salvation. Now, if God is able to accomplish through the suffering of Jesus Christ, the salvation of all those who believe, is he able to accomplish something good through your suffering? Yeah, he is, isn't he? Even Jesus learned obedience through the things he suffered. 
Can you learn obedience through the things you suffer? You can. So that you can begin to pray like Hezekiah. In fact, Hezekiah became a source of salvation from Assyria to all the people in his kingdom through this suffering. Because it was through this suffering that he prayed and God answered his prayer by saying, I'll save you from Assyria. That's not stretching the text. That's just what it says. God's answer to his prayer because of his suffering. That's just this leads to this leads to this. There are many reasons God may cause us and allow us to go through suffering. Some of them are discipline, which flows, remember Hebrews 12, out of his love for us, right? Some of them are simply so that he may be glorified as the world sees his people respond to suffering with faith with prayer, with dependence on him. Is God glorified when we respond to suffering that way? Oh, yeah, God is glorified, isn't he? Because we know we couldn't respond that way if it wasn't for the fact that he was at work in us by the power of his Holy Spirit in the first place. You don't respond well to suffering unless God gives you that power. Let me propose just one reason for you to think about. Sometimes God causes us to go through suffering so that we will pray. So that we will be driven to him in prayer through our suffering. How often do you pray when God leaves you fat and sassy? Remember when the Israelites were going into the promised land that that was the warning. You're going to get fat and sassy and you'll forget about me. And I'll discipline you so you remember me. Do you pray when everything's going well? Here's motivation to pray when everything's going well so that you don't have to pray by God making everything go bad. Now, I know I'm out of time, but we haven't talked about the sign we got this beautiful end where Hezekiah is prayed, God sends the prophet back, and he still wants a sign. Now, guys, seriously, we always want a sign, don't we? We got the answer. What sign will there be that, that these things will come to pass? Hezekiah asks for a sign that these things will come about. He only has to wait three days. For the answer, I mean, like, God said, within three days, you're going to be standing, making sacrifice at the temple. He only has to wait three days, but he still wants a sign. He says, it's easy for the sun to go down. God answers. He says, okay, I'll give you a sign. Okay. You want the sun to go down the steps or up the steps? Right? It's easy for the sun to go down, says Hezekiah. Let's have the sun go back up. That's my kind of sign. An obvious sign. An unambiguous sign. Can't be misinterpreted, right? You remember that Gideon wanted there to be water on the ground and the fleece dry. Pretty unambiguous whether the fleece is dry or not, right? 
but maybe it's just an oddity of the way physics works and I don't quite understand condensation and so forth. Can we do it the opposite way too? Let's make this totally unambiguous. This, is, this one's unambiguous, isn't it? We know it's easy for the sun to go down. Let's have it back up. What is the sign for you that the Lord hears your prayers and sees your tears? You wish it was Isaiah, right? You wish it was a messenger from the Lord coming back from the courtyard. Oh, turn around, come back. Here's the answer. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be wonderful? Do you have a sign? Do you have any evidence that God will hear your prayers, that he has heard, that his promises will be kept? We've got his promises. You guys, you, you have his promises. He's said what he's going to accomplish, what he's going to do. He's going to work out all things, work everything for your good. That's the word. You've got the message of God from his prophet written down permanently. That's his word. Is there any sign that he'll keep his word? It's easy to see man fall. What if you saw a man changed from the inside out to a holy worshiper of the Most High God? That would be a miracle, wouldn't it? That would be a sign that he has the power and he is keeping his promises. God has given us such signs. Look at your life. Look at what he has done for you. Look at what he has done in you. Look around you. See the fruit of the Holy Spirit and the power of him being at work, healing people. There's no doubt 